You're listening to the So What Podcast. Trouble with Pelagianism is there's no need for grace. If you want to say that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin and and if it is the work of Christ that accomplishes that, then Pelagianism, it's not a heresy having to do with the person of Christ, but with the work of Christ. It is rejecting this, the work of Christ as one who atones for sin and frees us from sin because it rejects that we begin in a state of sin. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. On this first of a two-part episode, the crew will discuss Pelagius and Pelagianism. Before we head over to our discussion, again, we'd just like to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for SoWhatPodcast. We'd like to send a special thank you to X-Outs, Nick Gandy, JN Smith 76 and Keys Kiddo for your favorable ratings in iTunes. They really help the show out a lot, so thanks, guys. Let's head to our discussion. So, gents, today we are talking about Pelagius and the school of thought that developed from him, Pelagianism. And this talk is going to be a little bit different from our previous episodes in that the heresies that we've dealt with so far have primarily been orbiting the person of Christ or that his being. Is Christ God or is he created, for example, in Arianism from the last three episodes? But this episode is going to be different. Because we're dealing now not with the person of Christ, but with the work of Christ, what he did. And does sin affect the entirety of the human soul? Is total depravity true? How does sin affect our wills and decision-making before faith in Christ? So these are big issues that are surrounding the work of Christ. And these conversations are happening in the early church. Enter Pelagius, who's one of these guys that brings these ideas up into public discourse within the Christian church and get some pushback. So who is Pelagius? Pelagius, circa 354 AD until after 418 sometime, because nobody knows what happened to Pelagius. Really? It's yeah. a mystery. Do you have music for this part? I could. I yeah. can have spooky music coming up. He is condemned as a heretic by the church and wanders off into exile in Egypt, mm-hmm. biblical theme. Mm-hmm. and is ne'er 
heard from again, nor seen. So he's with Tupac and Elvis, I assume, <laughs> collaborating on an album as we speak. Right. Where did he, uh, where so did he come born from? born probably mm-hmm. in Britain. Again, we don't know the date of his birth Britain. or his provenance. Jerome says Ireland. Augustine. So he's got that going for Called him, him a Scot. But Scott could refer to someone from Ireland because of the yeah. dispersion of the Britons and the different people groups in the UK at this time. Right. Augustine also said he was jammed full of Scottish porridge. Which not, not a bad I thing. I don't think it was a compliment. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> and we'll get into their uh, reality TV show that they had in the 4th century, yeah. early 5th century. So Pelagius goes to Rome about 380 and for three decades thereafter seems to have been regarded as orthodox. He wrote an acceptable treatise on faith in the Trinity and a commentary on the Pauline epistles. He condemned the Manichaean heresy. We can talk some about Manichaeism. I know we're going to devote an episode to it later on with a special guest. Mm -hmm. So he condemned the Manichaean heresy and gained a reputation as a spiritual director, though he didn't hold an official position in the church. He was personally distressed by the apathy he found among Christians in Rome. These are, you know, Four centuries after the time of Christ, he's looking around Rome at these Christians. He is very committed. He's sold all of his possessions. He's ascetic. And he tried to then understand why are these people so apathetic about the faith. And what he identified it with was Augustine's view of divine grace, which asserted that man was unable to earn salvation. And he thought this led to potentially a apathetic attitude in people. If I'm unable to earn salvation, then why should I even try? So he didn't like Augustine. And in fact, he took issue with this particular prayer in the Confessions where Augustine says, give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. Plagius didn't like that idea that one had to rely upon God to do everything, essentially. Mm -hmm. Where was the role for human effort? And again, here's someone who's sold all of his possessions and is living an ascetic, spiritually disciplined life and directing others in that way. So the barbarians are literally at the gate in 410. Uh, Goths invade Rome. The Roman Empire's crumbling. Pelagius and his ex-lawyer, a guy named Celestius, have to migrate to North Africa from Rome because the barbarians are taking over. Who's in North Africa in 410 AD? Augustine. Augustine. So you can see how the Western is playing out here. Mm -hmm. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. Somebody needs to do the tumble brush. (laughs) Ah, uh, okay. So Celestius and Pelagius land in North Africa, fleeing the Goth invasion of Rome. Augustine's not happy to have this guy in his backyard. Pelagius denies original sin, the view that justifying grace is not given freely, but according to merit, and the assertion that after baptism, sinless perfection is possible. So a couple years later, Pelagius goes on to Palestine, to Jerusalem, and he's trying to avoid there this charge of heresy that is being brought against him. Meanwhile, the aggressive Celestius, left behind, has been condemned by the church at Carthage, and that's where Augustine is, for expressing opinions of which Pelagius might not have approved. For example, the outright rejection of infant baptism. Pelagius did believe you should still Mm. baptize infants he just didn't think it removed original sin Mm because he didn't believe in original sin he thought it just brought them in as full members in the church and they could partake of communion by the way that was the practice in the church to give communion to infants in the east and west at this time and i think it's still the practice in the east and in the anglican communion that all baptized members can partake of the table and the methodist tradition and the methodist church too good so i won't talk about 
the Presbyterians at this point. Don't do it. And their glorified baby dedication that they call baptism. Don't okay. do it. I won't. So I won't even mention it. <laughs> you better not. So now <laughs> the problem with Pelagius was he made powerful enemies. Yeah. What if you across the table from me was Augustine and Jerome? Mm-hmm. Like that's, you know, that's a pretty good tandem. Those are big hitters. Yeah. So Pelagius is condemned by two African councils in 416. After this, nothing more is heard of Pelagius. A modified form of his views, known as semi-Pelagiism, lingered on for many years with echoes of it still detectable in some modern holiness groups. So much of that I read from J.D. Douglas in Who's Who in Christian History. So there's a lot to discuss in here, as, mm-hmm. as we were discussing before we began recording. So many significant theological controversies and doctrines which become developed and grow through the centuries are caught up in this North African shakedown of Pelagius. Mm-hmm. And so we can talk about original sin versus original righteousness or innocence. We can talk about predestination versus free will. We can talk about the extent to which sin has affected human beings since our first parents fell in the garden. We can talk about key texts of scripture used in both directions. I mean, Pelagius knew the Bible well, um, and would look at verses like Deuteronomy 24, which says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And you have statements in Ezekiel that, one, affirm generational cursing, and that the sins of the father shall be visited upon the children. And then you get reversals of that later on that say, no, the soul that sins shall die. And so there is an argument looking at original sin, and I don't mean to embark on original sin right now, but that says, how is it just of God to then punish Adam and Eve's posterity who were not there making that choice and eternally condemn the human race apart from some sort of outside act of grace to save a person? Mm -hmm. And that question we will answer by the end of our two-part podcast right absolutely yes. well um, it's shaping up that way but, but <laughs> so and these are still live issues in the church a that's lot right, of them yeah. so and, yeah. and that's oh, yeah. that's kind of the point i wanted to make is that it, this is it's it's interesting to me because original sin is perhaps one of the most controversial doctrines that you will encounter in pastoral ministry mm-hmm. in you know sort of academia theological circles um people are highly resistant to the suggestion that they come into the world as sinners, um, and I've, I've, I've encountered that in a variety of settings. It seems to me the most self-evident doctrine available. Uh, I mean, just look, watch the news, right? Um, it seems very clear to me that everyone starts out broken. <laughs> uh, yeah. Everyone starts out, you know, you don't have to learn to sin. You come into the world, and you anyone with children, it's it's demonstrable and very clear that they naturally do things they ought not to do. You know, they lie to teach them to, to get out of trouble. Mm-hmm. They get into trouble in the first mm-hmm. place. Some of those things, they are taught by their parents. Uh, some of those things, they just sort of pick up because it's naturally the state that they uh, have come into the world in. Yeah, that's right. G.K. Chesterton has a really great line on this in Orthodoxy. He says, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. Yeah, <laughs> just just 
open your eyes. Right. Yeah. Take yeah. a look around. Yeah. It's very clear. That's right. That uh, ever ever you know, and, and sometimes when I'm preaching on sin, I'll I'll sort of say, all right, if you've never sinned and this is not an issue for you, raise your hand. Mm-hmm. Well, how many hands go up? Zero. Everyone under the age of twelve. Consider the doc. <laughs> consider the doctrine <laughs> demonstrated. Raises right? their hand. Though. You know, yeah. Everyone uh, and parents can testify for their children. Yeah. So it's so it's it's, it's highly controversial, yet it seems incredibly clear in terms of making an argument for for what's going on here. Yeah, I mean it. And just go ahead, Brad. Well, I was just going to say, you know, from the perspective of those who deny and who want to, you know, argue against the Christian belief in uh, original sin, which Brad, it, it, which Brad does, by the way. <laughs> no. Um, okay. Just it's, it's in, in private conversation. Yeah. He often does in private conversation. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not surprising. You, you'd fully expect a person who's uh, dead in trespasses and sins, blind to the spiritual things that Christians profess to believe, to, you know, shout at the top of their lungs that they're alive and that they, they, they're the ones who really see. You know, it's like a fish in water doesn't know he's wet. It's just how it is. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 sort of unsurprising, and and in some way ought to draw us into a state of compassion. They're just unaware, blinded. Yeah. Part of it is there. There's a confusion over what's actually being claimed. I think, um, and sometimes there's confusion over different ter- terminology, different a- approaches to the doctrine of sin. For example, what's the relationship between original sin and total depravity? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times there's kind of a confusion between how those are, they're sort of conflated often, I think. Yeah. So that original sin is taken to mean you're as bad as you could possibly be because right. you're totally depraved. Yep. But really they're distinct. Um, and just to sort of set out the, 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 the grammar of the discussion, original sin simply means that we come into the world not in a state of neutrality, but in a state of brokenness, in, in a state of opposite enmity with God. We enter into the world at enmity with God um, under the curse of sin and death brought from Adam. We could say with David, Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth, speaking of the woman birth, in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Yeah, yeah. So it is simply the straightforward claim that we enter into the world not in a state of neutrality, Mm -hmm. not in a state of positive relationship to God, but in a, in a state of enmity with God and all that goes with that. That's about the quality of our uh, relationship with God and uh, the quality of our state of sinfulness. Total depravity, on the other hand, it is not about quality, it's about scope. Right? So total depravity came along in the Reformation because you had some folks uh, in the Middle Ages saying every sin affects every part of our 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 human humanity except our intellect mm-hmm. or our rationality mm-hmm. we can our rationality is untainted um, and the reformers come along and say no 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 that's not right sin affects all of our you know our mind our will our emotions our mm-hmm. physicality every aspect every, our, our humanity in its totality is touched by sin um, so original sin means we come into the world at enmity with God um, total depravity means that that brokenness, that enmity, that that negative status touches every aspect yeah. of our... It doesn't mean we're total in quality. It's not as bad as we could possibly be. Mm-hmm. We could all be worse. Yeah. Uh, it's just to say that my, my, my rationality is not untouched by my sinfulness. An analogy or an illustration that I use very often when I'm preaching 
on total depravity is a glass of water. I think this is helpful to understand total depravity and what it is and what it is not. If you were walking through a desert on a very hot day and I offered you a pure glass of water, would you drink it? Absolutely. If I didn't offer you that, but I offered you a full glass of a very powerful poison, would you drink it? Absolutely not. Why? Because everything from top to bottom in that glass is poison. There's mm -hmm. no water in it. If I took that pure glass of water and took a little bit of the poison from the other glass, mixed it around in the pure glass of water and offered that to you, would you still drink it? Absolutely not. Right. Because the poison cannot now be distinguished from the pure water. Mm -hmm. There isn't a part of the glass that is unaffected by the poison. Right and you would still die ingesting it. It's not as po it's not as poisonous as it could be. Right. You could be a pure glass of poison, mm -hmm. but it is in every in every feature touched by that. Yeah, that's helpful. That's right. Yeah, one thing uh, you know, I'd want to say is that the language we're using here of total depravity uh, comes historically from uh, an event called the Synod of Dort where the Reformed in uh, the Netherlands got together to respond to some theological thinking of a man named Jacob Arminius and his followers, uh, the Remonstrants. He was from and, Armenia, uh, they, right? I believe so, yes. <laughs> Tread lightly no. on Jacob. <laughs> Tread lightly. He was both an Armenian and an Arminian. That's incredible. So that's why it's so confusing. <laughs> Well, and the, the the important thing here is that Arminius came to uh, bear the, the charge of us being semi-Pelagian in his theology. And uh, so uh, it's a real, you know, important... Incorrectly, I insist. Incorrectly. Says, well, the Wesleyan. Uh, <laughs> says, the, says the Wesleyan Arminian in the room. Right, and, and it still gets thrown around, you know, the charge of being semi-Pelagian. So why is that a bad thing? You know, we could we could tackle it from that angle. Why is it? Why would you not want to be a semi-Pelagian? Well, why would you want to prove that you're not? Let's talk about the difference between Pelagianism, Pelagianism and, and semi-Pelagianism. Yeah, semi so There's a quote from Charles Hodge where he says, "It's not so much the ghost of Pelagius I fear, but the ghost of semi-Pelagius." Yeah, yeah. So. so let's so let's first talk about though. Why would it be bad to be a Pelagian? Which I think naturally yeah. would then lead us to well, then what's wrong with yeah. semi-Pelagianism? Yeah, I, I think we should say. It would be very convenient to be a Pelagian. Yes. And there's an appeal to oh, yes. Pelagius' perspective because it removes or resolves a difficulty and a mystery which hangs over the controversy between divine sovereignty and human responsibility or providence and free will or however you want to cast those mm -hmm. terms. And we just mentioned it, or I did, reading about Pelagius, the Manichaean controversy. But Manichaeism was a dualistic... In fact, Kyle, we were talking over lunch yesterday of Scientology, and as I began to read more about Manichaeism and its cosmic scope and these sparks of light stolen and put inside yeah. the brain from Satan, from yeah. the primordial light that needed to be released, it made me think of Scientology. But Very similar. Manichaeism was much... There was so much involved with it that it was you know, appropriately condemned by the church. But it had this dualistic view of light and dark and good and evil that you see in Gnosticism. And Augustine, Pelagius's opponent, was a Manichaean for nine years, was a part of this sect. And it was easy to then see the doctrine of original sin as caught up in that because here you have this primordial event that forever casts humanity on the side of evil and God on the side of good in this battle that's played out, you know, in human hearts and human history. And 
Pelagius wants to sidestep all of that and say no. Grace is not required for a man to become saved. All that's required is human effort toward righteousness mm -hmm. because we're born like Adam and Eve before the fall, right. innocent, and with the opportunity to become holy or to choose, make evil choices. Right. And therefore the responsibility is on you, apathetic Roman, to seek righteousness and yeah. don't feel condemned to a predestined fate mm -hmm. of outside of grace because it, the choice lies with you. Yeah. So if you read the Anglican Articles of Religion. Um, and everyone should. As, the, as they should. Says the Anglican. Um, which the United Methodist Church has adopted most of from John Wesley. As they <laughs> should. As they should. So I can sort of draw on that stream here. Uh, yeah, Article number nine of original or birth sin puts it this way. Original sin standeth not in the following of Adam, open parentheses, as the Pelagians do vainly talk, close parentheses. So the implication there is Pelagians say, say that you come into the world in sort of a neutral or mm -hmm. innocent state, and you either become a sinner by, like Adam did, by, fo by following in his footsteps and sinning, or you can just sort of, you know, follow in the footsteps of Jesus and be a swell guy or gal or something like that, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Which, as Kyle's going to say, is the default view of Western culture. Right. Yes. Semi-Pelagianism comes along and says, well, no, let's not say that. Basically, you need to sort of show some initiative, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and then God will sort of give you a shot in the arm with some grace mm -hmm. and help out with that. Mm -hmm. The trouble with Pelagianism is there's no need for grace, right? If you want to say that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin and the life that Christ extends to us enables us to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And if it is the work of Christ that accomplishes that, then Pelagianism re rejects that. And that's the problem with it. So it's not, and that's why Kyle said earlier, it's not about the, it's not a heresy having to do with the person of Christ, but with the work of Christ. Right. It is rejecting this, the work of Christ as one who atones for sin and frees us from sin because it rejects that we begin in a state of sin. Mm -hmm. it it might be helpful to point out here the difference between how Adam's disobedience is viewed by Pelagius versus Augustine. For Pelagius, it was nothing more than a bad example. It doesn't have any effect on us or any enduring effect in the human race. The repercussions were, though, that Adam's progeny were born outside of the garden state. Yes. So we're, we're, when you're speaking about those terms, it's... For Augustine, you mean? For, for yeah. no, 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 no. For Pelagius, yeah. for Pelagius, yeah. yeah. Okay. So there was there was a consequence. It's just not yes. a they don't, major. So there's a they don't have the advantages that yes. Adam had. Exactly. Where they would have they, to work that much harder. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. they still got thorns and thistles and things. Yes. You know. Yeah. But but as far as like your personal soul, your personal. But, uh, I am not contaminated by anything that yeah. happened thousands of years or millions of years right. before. So the I function of the curse in Genesis three is truncated. Yes. Basically. Right. It's a bad, it's a yeah, bad example. But helpful. for Augustine, it's there's something about Adam's disobedience that is communicated to all of humanity afterwards. It is imputed, and so we're going to talk about Romans five at some point. Um, but this idea of imputation and of belonging to Adam, as it's contrasted to belonging to Christ and being in Adam, and the consequences of that mm -hmm. versus being in Christ and the benefits yeah, of that. Yeah. Would you uh, would y'all say that it's the same distinction that we often make today between nature and nurture? 
that uh, Pelagius's view is one that we are nurtured into sin. We have the ability to live in uh, holiness or righteousness, but because of the the surroundings, we are you know we we end up sinning. Uh, versus the view that Augustine puts forward, and that you know we affirm that by nature we are sinners. Is that helpful, or is that missing the mark? I think it is, and it hints on something that, a point that I would like to make as somebody who studies world religions, what you're describing is that modern psychological distinction between what goes wrong with human beings, because clearly we're supposed to be born neutral, right? So is there something in our nature that causes us to be more prone to addiction, for example, or anger, or is it something in our nurture? Is it the way that we're raised? And you see this type of thinking in almost every single worldview that I could think of. And, and original sin is an incredible distinctive of Orthodox Christianity that almost every other religion and worldview, for that matter, even secularism, refuses to acknowledge. So, for example, everyone is familiar with Islamic culture where women will be dressed from head to toe, if not having their entire face revealed, at least their head revealed. Why is that? Is it a cultural thing or is there theology behind it? Yes, both, but the theology behind it is squarely Pelagian. We're born morally neutral blank slates, according to Islamic theology. It is the external temptations that cause a man and a woman to sin. And so the way in Islamic culture to allow a man not to lust after a woman is to cover her completely, right? It's not something in his nature that's causing him to sin. It's, it's the environment around him, right? Uh, and that's Islam. You think about heterodox Christian groups such as Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Christian science, all of these worldviews are Pelagian at their core. We're morally blank slates. For them, the atonement of Christ like gets us back to what we were supposed to be in Adam. You mentioned Scientology earlier, morally blank slates. Unitarian Universalism, morally blank slates. It's pervasive in every worldview with the exception of Orthodox Christianity. And those worlds lack, I mean, I, t I take it for the case that they, they lack a robust account for the mess that the world is in. That's correct, yeah. Um, Christianity comes along and says, oh, hey, you know why all you hear is bad news when you watch the news? Is because uh, all these folks were born into sin. That's right. And they're far, yeah. very far, as the article says, very far gone from original righteousness. Yeah. And that yeah. explains everything. Right. It, it really yeah, does. You can't, it explains everything. You can't do away with the problem of evil uh, in any coherent way without yeah. some mm -hmm. account of the, uh, of the original sin. Yep, yep. I mean, everything from... Why someone cheats on their spouse to why someone flew planes into the Twin Towers mm -hmm. to why people are getting their heads chopped off and crucified mm -hmm. um, to why some national governments require, you know, force women to have abortions. All of it is explained by the doctrine of original sin. Mm -hmm. All of it. And mm -hmm. it's illustrated really beautifully. I just thought of this in M. Night Shyamalan's movie, The Village. You know, y you think you could seclude yourself from the world. Uh, go and, and create a perfect society uh, away from the temptations and pressures of life. But spoiler alert, uh, it doesn't work. Uh, you know, sin has its effects yeah. and problems erupt. Yeah, even in church history, time and time again, there have been theocratic communal societies in Europe, in Africa, in North America, especially during the Second Great Awakening, where they were attempting to make these Christian utopias. 
at their core, they were Pelagian. They thought that they could pull this mm-hmm. off, and they they left uh, original sin at the door in their mind. Except little did they know it was present in their community, and all of them, without exception, fail. Turns out they brought it with them. That's right. They brought it's it with original them. to them. Right. So, but and and that's that is. I mean, it's it's worth pointing out too, and this is um. That that. There is for Adam. There is this thing: original righteousness. Right. This is not original sin. Is not God's best for humanity. Right. It's not God's design. In fact, I would want to argue that original sin is dehumanizing, even yeah. right. Because yeah. if you take Adam as God created him um, in a state of innocence and original righteousness, as the article suggests or or declares, Article Nine, um, then that's God's design. And if you take Jesus as the ultimate human being, the truly human one. Um, Jesus is the one who defines humans, humanity, and he was tempted in every way and without sin. Mm-hmm. Um, then when we sort of hold them, him, him up as the standard for, for God's vision of human life, we discover that our own sinfulness is a degra- uh, detracts from that. It's, mm-hmm. it's a degrading of that. Um, so sin doesn't need to be seen, while it is, characteristic of uh, our common human experience it need not be um it is not essential to right right um and and this is where the wesleyan tradition wants to come along and say grace is bigger than sin and that may get us into romans uh, five if you want to where where sin abounded grace abounded all the more so what why not adopt pelagianism as your view of salvation and humanity Well, first, it denies original sin, which is, as G.K. Chesterton noted, the most obvious and provable aspect of Christian theology. Second, it also denies total depravity, the idea that sin has infected every aspect of our being, heart, mind, and soul, which effectively discounts and degrades the grace God has given to regenerate us for his glory. Pelagianism cannot say with David in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Instead, it magnifies the state of human competency and righteousness while minimizing the necessity for God's sovereign grace and mercy. This is a major issue that virtually all Christians of every color and stripe have recognized as being wrong. Well, we hope you join us next time as we continue our discussion on Pelagianism, specifically with regard to Paul's famous Romans 5 discourse on sin in Adam and life in Christ. Pelagius, his dates, circa 354 A.D. until after 418 sometime, because nobody knows what happened to Pelagius.